Psalm of the day is Psalm 40. Listen to God's word. I waited patiently for the Lord. He indicted to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon the rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I say, behold, I have come in the scroll of your book and is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is is within my heart. I have told the glad glad news of deliverance is a great congregation. Behold, I am not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overcome me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those who put to shame and the disappointment all together, who seek to snatch away my life, let those who turn back and brought to dishonor, who delight in my hurt, let those who appall because of their shame, who say to me, Ah, ah, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of for me, for you are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. All men are like the grass, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. The word of our God stands forever. Our epistle lessons found in Hebrews chapter 10. We are reading verses 1 through 10. For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, 
when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do offer our thanks for your word and the truth of the gospel, the grace that pulls us out of the muck and the mire of sin. We ask, Lord, that you would speak this morning as your servants come prepared to listen. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you have a Bible available, you may turn back to Psalm 40. It is summertime where we enjoy time in the Psalms each year during this time of year. And our focus this morning is on Psalm 40, this song of deliverance and of prayer, supplication to God for his help. In her first novel, Wise Blood, Flannery O'Connor tells the story of Hazel Motes. He's a native of Tennessee, sent off to fight in the Great World War. He had two things in his possession that he kept in his duffel bag along with his gear. The first was his mother's old silver-rimmed glasses, and the second was a small black Bible. You see, Hazel Motes intended to return to Tennessee and be a preacher like his grandfather when he got back from the war. And so continually throughout the story, he tells people that he was determined that the government was not going to corrupt him, nor were the temptations of a foreign place. None of these things were going to damn the soul of Hazel Motes. But Hazel, despite all of his religious appearances, he was doomed. His faith did not last long. He wasn't doomed actually to die. He was just doomed to be shipwrecked in his faith and his commitment to Jesus. And you ask the question, why? Why was he doomed? Why is there such foreshadowing as you read Flannery O'Connor's novel that you know that he's not going to make it? O'Connor explains that when she writes this. She's writing about Hazel even as a child. She says, there was already a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. And hasn't that been the way of so much religion? That the way to avoid Jesus and having to deal with Him honestly is just to avoid sin. Help yourself, be good, and you will not really need Jesus beyond some teachings that He might give you. The great irony is that while so much has passed under this banner of religion, even inside Christian churches, it has nothing to do with the salvation that God puts on offer for us. It absolutely has nothing to do with it. There couldn't be more profound misunderstanding of the grace of God that God brings to us through the Bible. Salvation is not about avoiding sin to please God, but it's rather about being delivered out of our sins by God. And yet we can often confuse that. 
God finds us in the miry bog that David mentions in Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog. Dirty and unclean and stuck. This is where God finds us. This is where God goes to discover us in order to redeem us and delivers us and deliver us. David goes on to explain, though, that not only does God deliver us from our sins, pulling us out of the bog, but also that God affects us, that he enables us to respond to him. Look what he says in verse six. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. If you're following along in an ESV Bible, you'll see that they put a footnote that says an alternate translation that I think is actually preferable, that you have dug ears out for me. And how beautiful is that? Not only does God accomplish our salvation, not only does he bring it into the world through the death and resurrection of Jesus, he also applies it to us, that he enables us to respond to him, that he allows us to say yes to his great redemption of us in Jesus. He digs out ears for us. He opens our lips to profess his name and to proclaim his praise. He redeems, he applies. This is the grace of God. The free grace of God to work salvation for us. And this is what has happened to you. This is what has intersected your life. That the grace of God to deliver you and the grace of God to apply that to you has intersected your life. And so the primary question for us is what does it then look like as those who have been intersected, as those who have met the grace of God? What is the shape that our life is then to take? And this is the shape of the life that Psalm 40 reveals for us. And this morning, as we lead up to the communion table in our brief moments, we're going to look at four things from Psalm 40 that teach us about the shape of that life that has, has encountered the grace of God. The first thing is this. There is a song of praise. You find this in the first five verses where David writes this, He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. And it's crucial here to catch the biblical ordering of these things. That it's so important for us to understand that grace does not purchase, that gratitude does not purchase grace. That praise does not somehow secure God's pardon. That thanksgiving does not procure the mercy of God. But rather, the biblical order of these things is that grace generates gratitude. That praise, that praise comes from, that it follows pardon. That thanksgiving is an answer to God's mercy. That this is the order of how salvation works in our life. That the new song God puts on our lips is a respond. It is an answer to His initiating grace with us. And it's also important for us to understand that we don't offer praise to someone for something that we could have accomplished. Something that we could fix. Something that we can find inside of our own ability. But rather, praise here is offered to God because we were in an unfixable situation. A miry bog in which we were stuck and we were dirty and filthy and we're not going to be able to exit out of. 
We were destined to die there. And yet God in grace puts our feet on a secure rock. He puts us in a safe place. He hides us inside of His refuge. And friends, it's in understanding the unfixability of our situation that a song of praise emerges. And this is the absolute cancellation of self-righteousness inside of the Christian church. That there is no ground for us to stand on. There's no secure rock that we can put ourselves on. We can't plant our feet in a firm place when left to our own devices. That it is God and God alone who can do that. And no self-righteous person has ever truly sung the praise of God. Because while they may utter words that are mixed with music, from their heart they don't know what it is to be relieved and have their burdens taken and borne by God. And this is what has to happen to the sinner. And the sinner then turns and sings a song of praise because he knows God has fixed the unfixable situation. It's the first piece of the shape of a life intersected by God's grace. The second piece, though, is that there is a doxological evangelism that takes place. I want you to follow along with me in verses 5, 9, and 10. This is a clumsy phrase that I've just used with you. Doxological evangelism. What does that mean? I'm borrowing the phrase from Ed Clowney, a longtime professor at Westminster Seminary. It's a helpful phrase, and I don't know how else to capture what this psalm actually communicates. If you look in, in verse 5, it says, You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. And then verses 9 and 10, I told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. And this is how David experiences the grace of God in his life. He is so profoundly affected by it experientially transformed that he will then turn to commend it to others. He will proclaim it. He will announce it because he's sharing the saving deliverance of God that has intervened into his life and taken him out of the miry bog and put him on secure steps. He then, of course, is telling others about that. And friends, this is the way grace works in our life, that what we cherish, we are going to commend to others. It doesn't have to be really that intentional because it just organically develops and happens. And then it will intentionally happen because, of course, having experienced an unfixable problem that has been fixed by God, in grace and mercy, of course, we would commend that to somebody else. And so it's an evangelism, a telling of others of the evangel of Jesus Christ, driven by the praise of Jesus because of our other, uh, utterly unworthiness, our undeservedness of that gift, that it just flows out and is pronounced to those around us. Several years ago, my father-in-law retired from his normal travel schedule, his uh, full-time working vocation, and at that time, he decided that he was going to get himself in shape. And he did. It was the first time he had really ever had a, a, a sacred space in his life that he could allot to exercise, and so he decided that he was going to take up getting in shape. 
and particularly he started participating in Pilates classes. This was what he was going to do to get in shape. And so we began to note that the schedule was pretty sacred about him going to Pilates class on certain days of the week, and not a whole lot violated that schedule. And then we started hearing a lot about Pilates and the great benefits for your health. And it was Pilates this and Pilates goals and Pilates things. And, you know, everything was about Pilates. Why was that? Because it had affected him. He lost tons of weight. He looked great. The best shape he had been in in his life. He felt good. And so, of course, what was he doing? He was commending Pilates to all of us. I nearly signed up. But that's what happens to us. That's the nature of when we've been captured by something. When something overtakes us, of course we talk about it. We commend it because we think it's helpful. We think it's good. And so we're going to press others with it. And friends, if it's true for things like Pilates or diets or whatever else we commend to other people, how much more so is that true of the gospel? That God fixing your unfixable problem in His grace. How much more do we get caught up in that? When we're taken captive by grace, we don't conceal it from others. It becomes natural to speak of it. The third piece that the psalm leads us into, though, is that there's also a personal consecration. We find this in verses 6-8, through eight, that once we have been intersected by the grace of God, there is a personal consecration of our lives to God that takes place. In 6, in sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear, or you have dug out ears for me. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. And the psalmist here, David, tells us that more than formal duties, that what God delights in is sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. But what God wants is this law written in the heart where we then delight to do what God instructs us. And David is here not dismissing the sacrificial laws, but he is pressing them to the side due to the tendency in human nature to go more religiously formal and to be satisfied that we can exhaust all of our duties to God simply by following the rules. That we can offer our sacrifices, we can put the lamb up there, and then we can be done and go on our way. And that's a profound misunderstanding of biblical religion and of how grace works but rather that when we've been captured by the grace of God, we then turn to offer ourselves to God. We consecrate ourselves to Him and we seek to follow after Him. We'll do so imperfectly. We'll do so relatively. We'll do so impartially and even half-heartedly on many days. But at the end of the day, when we have been captured by the grace of God, we do give ourselves to Him. That we we follow that law that has been written on our hearts by the Spirit of God and that we are seeking this general trajectory of obedience to follow after Him. Paul captures the same thought if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. In chapter 11, Paul extols the grace of God telling us how God has accomplished our salvation from beginning to end. Verse 36, he says, For from him 
and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. And so Paul captures his whole argument of chapter 11 with this doxological statement about how everything we have comes from God and everything returns to God in praise. And then verse chapter 12, verse 1, is this tremendous transition. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. This has always been the path of the grace of God. That we return thanks and give praise to Him. That we always call it to mind, experiencing it. And then that we return with our lives to Him, consecrating ourselves to Him as a spiritual service of worship. And we do that by His mercies even. But we offer ourselves as a holy and a living sacrifice. From time to time, people ask in our worship services why we do the offering after the sermon. Today you'll note where that is placed between the sermon and the Lord's Supper. And it is that way for us because the offering is not simply a chance for the church to collect tithes and to receive monies. But the offering is the symbolic point in the service where we give our whole lives over to God. Yes, we present our tithes and we bring our monies to the Lord. But that is not simply about your bank account. That is about the sanctity of your entire life. And we devote ourselves to Him there. We pray and we ask for help. We're reflecting on the sermon. But friends, this is what it means to offer yourselves to God. And it's important for us to put that inside of a worship liturgy to consciously remind you that having received the grace of God, having heard the Word of God, that we respond to Him. And so there's great intention in what we're doing there at that point in the service. And we, we always want to be rem, uh, remembering and mindful of consecrating ourselves to God's service. The final piece, the shape of the Christian life, though, is that there is a confidence in trouble. You'll see that this psalm, Psalm 40, ends in a way not as it began. It began with declaring the past deliverance of God where he brought David out of the miry bog and put his feet in secure steps. But when you arrive in verse 11, we discover something new. He says, as for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. And so the psalm has now shifted from praise to a present distress, a problem where David can no longer see beyond his problems. He says that my sins are as many as the hairs on my head. My sins have stacked up against me. I cannot see they become so many. And have you ever felt that way? Perhaps you do after the week you just had. Perhaps you're counting up your own distresses and you're able to number your sins and feel them. In fact, not only do you feel them, but the weight seems so heavy that you don't quite know how to escape it. You can't see past your problem. Friends, David is sanctifying that experience. He is naming it. Saying that this happens in the Christian life. It's real. And a Christian doesn't act like it doesn't happen or pretend like they're better than that. 
but rather the Christian names it and owns it. And there are times where our sins add up and it feels awful and disgusting and we are find ourselves in a miry bog where we're trapped. And so what does the Christian do? How do we respond to that situation? Look again at David's prayer in verse 11. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. You see what happens here is that David appeals to that past steadfast love and mercy that he has experienced. That deliverance out of the miry bog. And he knows that God will then be for him. That God will not forsake him. Even though his sin adds up in this present moment, he also knows that the mercies of God will multiply to him. And that sin will not outrun grace, but grace will far outrun sin. Look what he says in verse 5. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. David understands and he counsels us in his prayer that we see the grace and the mercy of God multiply, abounding over our sin. And yes, our sins can stack up. They can add up. They can cloud our sight where we feel desperate. And what the Gospel demands of us at that point is that we remember the multiplying mercies of God that are ours through Jesus in His death and in His resurrection. And so we can have this profound confidence in the middle of deep struggle, in the middle of deep trial where we feel lost and captured and back in the bog and dirty and stuck, that the mercies of God can find us. That we can profess, great is the Lord. And David closes with this in verse 17. He says, as for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. And friends, this is the cry of one who finds themselves in distress and trouble. Poor and needy. Our confidence was never in ourselves in the first place. We didn't put our feet on the rock. We had nothing to do with that. God accomplished that salvation and God applied it to us and He brought us to that secure and safe place. And so when we find ourselves in trouble, where this prayer points us is back to the original source of our confidence. In the middle of our distress, we look back to our Deliverer. And so poor and needy, we come to Him. And why can we be so confident? It's intriguing that Psalm 40 is quoted in several places in the New Testament, but Hebrews 10 that we read just earlier is one of them. Where the words that I have delighted to do your will, oh my God, your law is within my heart. Did you catch in Psalm in Hebrews 10 who was speaking those words? It was Jesus. The one who was fully devoted, fully consecrated, as the God-man to come and do the will of God. He died in our place, taking that vocation and calling from God. He lived a perfect life and He gives Himself in our place that we might be set right with God is the force of Hebrews 10. Once and for all, offering Himself for us. And that's why we know the mercies of God are secure. That's why we know that God's steadfast love will never fail. That's why we know when our sins Add up that God's grace multiplies. Trust Him. Know that that's the shape 
of the Christian life. That is who your gracious God is. Put your trust in Him, no matter your distress. Let's pray. Father, we do give thanks that You have sent Your Son, Jesus Christ, and that Your grace outruns our sins, that it multiplies past them. We find ourselves in various distresses and troubles throughout life. Teach us to turn to You, to have confidence. And may there be a song of praise. May there there be a doxological evangelism that goes on. May there be a personal consecration because of all your love and all of your mercy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.